0: Seven or five But there's no reply
1: Ho, 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 everybody. Merry Christmas. This week, we are celebrating Christmas by hearing from Chris Dunn, bassist for the British rock band, City Boy. Now, if you're unfamiliar with City Boy, they really only had one hit to speak of, especially in the States. In 1978, this song right here, 5705, reached number 27 on the charts. If you're unfamiliar with City Boy, their sound is bonkers. It's like Queen, ELO, and Yes all mixed together with a bunch of other weird stuff. It's so cool and so different and so spacey, it's really worth checking out. One of the other things that's really noteworthy about City Boy is that their first five albums were all produced by a young up-and-coming producer by the, with the last name Lang. You know him as Mutlang. Yes, Mutlang got his start producing City Boy records. So we talk all about Mutlang in here. Lots of good Mutlang information. Now, eventually Chris left the band and uh, went to work for a label for a while. But for years and years and years, he was running a music equipment rental company. That is actually really, really fascinating. I'd never really thought of that side of the business before. But if you're a band and you rent out a studio and you want to record your album, you're going to need to rent keyboards and microphones and mic stands and whatever. And all that stuff has to come from somewhere. And somebody has to deliver it to the the studio. And someone has to pay for all that. And Chris's company did that for many 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 years so we learn a whole different side of the business than i've ever been exposed to before it's really kind of interesting so chris talks about a lot of these things he talks about when they went on a tour with hall and oats opening for hall and oats that's as you know i love that they talk he talks a little bit about getting to know rick okasic from the cars thanks to mutt laying and uh anyway it's just a different side of the business I have to give a huge thanks to one of our listeners, Rob Disner, for helping to make this one happen. I think it's great. I want to wish you guys a Merry Christmas by listening to Chris Dunn. He called me from his home in Tarrytown, New York. And as you can imagine, because he rents out music equipment, the sound is beautiful. I've had City Boy in mind for a while. Your Facebook page um, appears to be run by a guy named Rob Disner. And Rob is one of my listeners. And I contacted him a couple of years ago when I made the connection and said, do you know the guys in City Boy? I would love to talk to them. And he said, I don't. I just, this is more of like a fan site. But then recently you commented on there or found it or something. And when you did, he pointed to me, said, John, look, Chris is out there. And I was, great. That's what I've been waiting for is some kind of a, you know, connection, a way in. So, um, yes, there is another you.
2: Facebook page uh, that's named City Boy, but it's got zero activity. And I thought that was it. And then I can't remember exactly how I found Rob's site. I but uh, I thought, oh, well, this looks a little more realistic. So yeah. um, maybe I should uh, jump in here and uh, and say hi. Yeah. That's what I did, because I'm yeah. uh, as far as social media goes, I'm pretty much the the uh, most active of the right. members. I mean, Mike Slamer, the guitar player, does have a Facebook page, but he doesn't post nearly as often as I do. Right. And I and I log into the cityboy.org fan site mm. and pop into the chat room every now and then and uh, and uh, jump in and, and say hi and uh, put a few posts and some interesting things that I've discovered that uh, I know that people would like. I'm sort of like the curator, really, because I have I have all these diaries, and I have in these diaries notated every single gig we oh. ever did, <laughs> the dates, <laughs> the people we played with, the locations. Wow! And I have also, I mean, I'm a I'm a nut for numbers, so I mm-hmm. also kept track of all the plane flights we uh, took Ooh. in in the United States for the nine week tour. Uh, in 77 with wow. Nectar and Lake, and we also did some with Bebop Deluxe and uh-huh. one or two other people. And then the the um, the 14-week 66-gig tour with Daryl Hall and John Oates mm-hmm. in 1978. And uh, I was just actually looking through the 77 diary, and I discovered that we had done three gigs with Daryl Hall and John Oates in the 77 tour as well when no we way. were uh, on the road here, mostly with Nectar and Lake. Yeah. So maybe they re- they re- recalled uh, those gigs and thought, hey, that band City Boy from England was pretty good. It'd be nice to have them for an entire fucking tour. How about that?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good compliment to you, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's save all this, because I'm going to, Hall & Oates are like my favorite band ever, so I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions about that. But
2: um, Right, well, there, there's a whole story on them as well. I mean, there's a story around a lot of things, and they all they all seem to interconnect. Even my afterlife, after I left City Boy... I continue to inter, intersect with Mutt Lang and yeah. and and other people that um, that connected with uh, with City Boy. Yeah. So I've got stories like that, which good. which the the coincidences and and the uh, crisscrossing of of lives is pretty remarkable, really.
1: That's great. Well, good. So that's what we like to hear here. We like to hear a lot of stories, name dropping. You know, all the right. fun kind of juicy details. Not juicy in the in a. In the sense where you're, you know, say, gossipy or negative or that's not what I mean. But just those yeah. fun stories about rock life. and everything. So first and foremost, I have I find it really interesting when I speak with bands like yours who have such a unique sound that basically touches on pretty much every genre there is. And the reason I find people like you so interesting is because I think are you guys sitting back in the very beginning and thinking, you know, we wanna be played on the radio and this is what we think pop songs should sound like. And then you create what you create, or do you sit back and think, we are gonna do what we wanna do and our and our sound is all over the place, but um, the people who like us will come to us and that will sustain our career. We're not necessarily trying to write pop songs. I'm, where kind, do you fall kind, into that?
2: Kind of the latter, but not okay. fully. Okay. Uh, back in the early days, Um, I uh, was working in a music store in Birmingham and I started at £12 a week (laughs) demonstrating classical guitars and I I, uh, really got into ragtime guitar and I started going to this folk club which was at the Cherry Trees Motel about 20 minutes down the road, halfway between Evesham and Stratford-upon-Avon. And they had a lot of really interesting people playing there, like Ralph McTell and Al Stewart and mm. many luminaries. I mean, I sat three feet in front of Al Stewart in the front row watching him play guitar back oh, in the boy. day, and he was just phenomenal. Yeah. So anyway, they had these local artists who would come on unpaid, and they were called floor singers, and they were just used as a warm-up act. So... I thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. I've got these various little ragtime instrumental pieces to play. I didn't sing. I just played guitar. Mm -hmm. And I'll just go up and perform. And so I did. And that's how I broke my nerve as well, because when you're trying to play intricate finger-picking guitar and your hands are shaking like crazy, that's the tricky thing. But that's how I overcame my nerves. And people actually really loved the acoustic guitar playing because no one else was really doing that except the major artists who came through occasionally. And, um, that's where I bumped into Stephen Lowell at, at a little floor singers contest. We got together the day after and, and ran through some songs and listened to some albums, uh, that we were all, um, mutually into. And like what? And Van Morrison was mm. one of them. I think, uh, I'm trying to remember this a long time ago. I'd have to go through my vinyl collection okay. to remind myself of all these, but sure. um, okay. uh, they might come to me as we go ahead. Sure. Um, but they were writing some really, really nice tuneful songs. They were doing like a Simon and Garfunkel type oh, setup nice. uh, with Steve playing guitar and, and, and uh, them singing harmonies. And so I was coming in uh, with acoustic guitar, sort of coming in and doing a bit of finger picking and playing lead and 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 what have you and we hit it off they they had another friend they'd they'd uh, had for some time uh, Max Thomas and he came to play 12 string and bongos and so That's we were that. an acoustic folk band and uh, we ended up playing at the cherry trees quite regularly and, and built a, a following but we decided you know we're not really going to go anywhere as a folk band right we need we need and we, we were also into people like Crosby Stills and Ash and Young who were folky but they had drums and bass Mm -hmm. so we thought you know if we could add a drummer and a bass player we'd be a little more rocky and maybe there'd be a chance we could um, uh, be um, somewhat more successful so that's what we did and at the time uh, Mike Slema was working with me at the music store I said to him yeah we're thinking of adding a bass player we're looking for people to audition Do you know anybody he said well you know I mean I play guitar but I also play bass so I'll come along and audition and during the audition we heard him play guitar uh-huh. and we thought this guy is really pretty darn good right so there was a bit of a uh, a mishmash going on and i said well you know i don't mind making up for uh, uh, r- uh, like little riffs on my bottom four strings of my acoustic guitar so maybe i could play bass you had never um, done
1: it up to that point
2: no not really mm-hmm. and uh, max thomas said well i started to learn how to play piano when i was 7 Chris, you didn't start till you were 13. So I think I should take, I should do keyboards because I've got a little more experience under my belt. So the band <laughs> gradually took shape. Uh-huh. And uh, then we had to find places to rehearse. And, and so there were various rooms in houses where we could rehearse during the day where the neighbors were not, were not at home because they were at work. And, and we used the garage at the bottom of my garden. We had a, a two car garage at the bottom of the garden next to the greenhouse so that was, um, mm-hmm. that was a place, and we just had to keep finding places. Max, Max's dad had this big factory in Kings Norton, and uh, it was a great spot to rehearse in the evenings because it was in this uh, industrial estate. But it was a big factory, and it was really echoey. But we we just made it work because right. we had sure. we had to, uh, keep keep trying to find places that didn't cost us anything to rehearse in. You see. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in in fact, um, uh, after we met Mutt, we he came and re- we rehearsed some some of the songs in our garage at the bottom of the garden.
1: <laughs>
2: <Really>?
1: <laughs> so how when did we... how did Mutt come along? I mean, was this a situation? Now, for anyone listening, we we should establish here that Mutt was not you know Capital M Mutt Lang that we know today. He was not that. He was just starting out. He was probably no different than anyone else. Maybe somebody with a lot of promise is. The label that you're eventually being signed to, are they the ones coming to you saying, we we think we want to pair you with this up-and-coming producer, or do you choose him? How do, well, Where does he factor into all this?
2: Here's what happened. Uh, we signed a management deal with this Swiss-German hairdresser from Studley, <laughs> Rene Sauter, who was a friend of John Starkey, who managed Jasper Carrot. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Jasper Carrot. I have not. He was a regular performer at the Cherry Trees Folk Club, and he was like a, a folky player but a comedian too. Hmm. And he ended up becoming very well-known in England got his own TV show. If you just Google Jasper Carrot, I think okay. it's Carrot with two Ts, uh, and you, you'll uh, you'll see that he became a, a, a megastar. Okay. And so Rene uh, had us go into this little studio in Birmingham called Zella, and we recorded some of the songs and did demos of them. And he took the demos down to London and shopped them around the record labels. And Polygram were very interested. And this guy, Chris Piers, who we renamed Crisp Ears, uh-huh. decided he liked <laughs> us, came to see us at a gig and signed us to a deal. And uh, so we said to Chris, well, we, we're going to need a record producer because we're going to have to go in the studio and record an album, right? He said, mm-hmm. well, yeah. We said, well, we really love Crime of the Century by Supertramp. Can you see if Ken Scott's available? Mm. <laughs> so he sure, said, I'll
1: make a couple of calls. I yeah, think. Ken Scott will drop everything and come work with you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Right>.
2: <laughs> and in fact, Ken Scott is now a Facebook friend. I found him and we've become friends and i told him about this.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's classic.
2: Um, he, uh, and so Chris Pears came back to us and said, unfortunately, he's kind of busy right now. Right. But... <laughs> I found this guy who just got off a plane from South Africa. We're going, huh? Hmm. Okay. His name is Robert John Lang. Uh, he's been fairly successful with his band in South Africa, but he's not really done much outside the country. But I really think you should meet this guy because he's actually potentially perfect for you. Hmm. So we met with Matt and we hit it off and we thought, I will you know he's got no history we don't know much about him but hell he seems to know what he's talking about turned yeah. out that he was a really great singer a great rhythm guitar player uh-huh. could also play bass we thought well this might be good because i might be able to pick up a few tips from yeah, playing
3: bass <laughs> <Right>.
2: <laughs> right. i'm still a little little uh, green around the ears there uh-huh so, so it, it all started and we started um, getting huh. together with Mutt uh, in various locations and routining the songs and, pr- and, uh, and honing them. And Mutt's method of production is kind of interesting because he will listen to your song and he will completely dismantle it. Yeah, and then it sounds that it way. And then back together again.
3: Yeah.
2: And it'll be nothing like it used to be, but way better, of course. And it's interesting because I have copies of the demos that we did of these songs and then you listen to those, and then you listen to the final version we, we did in the studio with Mutt. Uh-huh. And it's quite kind of interesting, because you can hear what he did to the song. Really? Did yeah.
1: he go by Mutt then, or was that a nickname yes. that came yes, later? Yes, Mutt
2: was yeah. always his nickname. It was, it was okay. way back to the days in South Africa. Yeah.
1: Okay. Interesting. So yeah, you would have had no idea. Give us an example of one of the songs on the first album that he made more special than it would have been
2: otherwise. I knew you were going to ask me that, so I actually have copies of the albums here in front of me. Oh, good. I bind myself these. Good. (laughs) Well, uh, one of the early singles released was The Hapkido Kid. Yeah.
0: It's sweet and sour He don't need no pistol in his hand So much bread and twice as many fans He scouts at you and then it chops you down He's the seventh son of the holy seventh Mm band Hapkido, Hapkido
2: Definitely um, put a little more uh, oomph into that song, and it, it actually became a number 32 uh, single in England. Mm. And interestingly enough, that song back in '76, we went in to do Top of the Pops on the 12th of May '76 and recorded it live in the studio. We were the first band ever to do that. Mm. Before that, every band mimed in the studio. Yeah. So they, they wanted to do something a little more radical And they said well we want to actually Have a band perform live While we're recording the show And that was on the Wednesday And the show was broadcast on the Thursday And the single came up, uh, out on the Friday No way! So it was all very good timing For yes. th- the promotion of that single Even yeah. though it only reached 32 but, uh, Which is probably higher than it would have done Without that Top True. of pop- True. Yeah. And after, after that they had Yes come in and do yours is no disgrace Live in the studio and mm. all this stuff and uh, yeah. that was the, the beginning of a whole series of of special things they did i mean even bands that didn't necessarily have a a single out they would bring them in as a as a feature on top of the pops yeah And top so. of the pops in case in case all the listeners don't uh, understand that if, if is a bbc show that no longer exists but went on for decades and decades yeah. and if you had a hit single you performed on top of the pops because if you didn't the hit single would disappear very quickly. And there's another story about, about top of the pops when it comes to five, seven five. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay. But, but anyway, that's that.
1: So when you're seeing, you know, your first album comes out and you're hearing yourself on the radio, I always find it really interesting. The transitions in people's lives, Um, you go from, you know, struggling musician to top of the pops, which is a really big deal over there. How does your life change? Do you, do you have more money than you had before? Do you go buy a nice car? Do you buy your mom a house? No, the, do you get better the girls?
2: What do you do? At the time, um, I, was, uh, actually, uh, I actually stopped my job at the music store in January 1975 and signed on the Dole. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Dole, the rock yeah, so, star on the so Dole. So I was getting yeah. about five pound a week, but I was getting by because it was just beer money and and gas was only five shillings a gallon back then. And I was still living at home. So I was managing to to struggle through as one as one does. Um, But, of course, the big problem was as soon as we were seen on top of the pops uh, and we go down to my local and uh, people would expect me to start buying all the rounds. You know, of course, that wasn't going to happen. So I had to tell them, look, just because you see me on TV doesn't mean I'm a a rich fuck. Yeah, right, (laughs) not going to happen. Right. Right. (laughs) That was the That was the main thing, really. Yeah. Yeah. uh, it didn't seem to um, necessarily affect my love life very much because for whatever reason, I think it was because I was a handsome young chap. I was attracting the women anyway. So oh, there
1: you go. There you go, didn't Chris. It seem That's... to have that effect. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, let's, uh, you know, so let's, first of all, I think I should say uh, Dinner at the Ritz I think is my favorite City Boy album, actually. Um, okay. Yeah. I. Um, it's just quirky enough. It's not so quirky that it's it's too weird to enjoy, but it's um, got a lot of really fun pieces on there. I like Walk on Water a lot. I think that's probably my favorite City Boys song.
0: So I'm sending zines from the legal dreams. The dude with an eye for a dime. My 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 God. And then there was John. He was a sunny side boy. I
1: Again, the sound of like going in all different directions. You pr- I'm sure you're aware of this. A lot of people always compare you guys to Queen and ELO, especially. Was that ELO, sort of a-
2: Yeah, well, ELO because we used Lewis Clark, who was the string arranger for... Uh, is that what it is? ELO, was there yes. ever
1: any conscious, like, we love what ELO is doing, so therefore we want to do kind of the same thing or is it just a matter of having not really
2: there? we we, okay. were, we never set out to try and emulate another band although and we were compared heavily with 10 cc probably because of the oh, harmony thing see that. Too. yeah
1: okay
2: there's a brief side story on 10 cc when we were touring over here in 78 with uh with hall and Oates. we were driving in a car in the middle of bum nowhere in in the mid- midwest and they play i'm not in love on the mm. radio, or it might have been The Things We Do for Love, one of the one of the only two hits that you'll hear on the radio from 10CC over here. <laughs>
3: right,
2: right. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. They were playing Life is a Minestrone Ooh. Off, off the same album as, as it, I'm Not in Love, which we, we thought, oh, that's interesting that they're playing that song. Yeah. And then at the end of the song, the DJ came on the radio, and he said, and that was Life is a Minestrone' by Ioc.
0: <laughs> oh, no! And we looked
2: at each other and went,
0: What? This
2: guy doesn't know shit. It's just ridiculous. I know, and it's the funniest story. One of the funniest stories. (laughs) Can you believe that a radio DJ would not even know... Well, not even know that the name of the band is 10 cc and not ioc but then probably not even know where the where the name 10 cc yeah, came from
1: yeah and i true. bet you don't even know that do i you? do know what that means actually Oh, okay yep. we won't get into yeah we'll leave it at that people are welcome <laughs> to google that if they want but i do know yes. where that comes from yes
2: exactly exactly yeah. so so yes dinner at the ritz is um is indeed um one of my favorite albums in fact i i love many songs on each album, and I Mm -hmm. still listen to them occasionally, because I just still marvel at at what we were able to create back then. Absolutely. But Dinner at the Ritz became a real centerpiece song, quite often the end of the set song, before we went into the uh, encores. And uh, we did a real vaudeville type of thing, you know, Paul and uh, I mean, um, Steve and uh, uh, Lowell would put on top hats and tails, and Mm. the roadies would run on with a little table with a candle on it and a couple of wine glasses on it, and so they were, they were we were posing as if they were actually sitting in the Ritz, and uh, and, yeah. and then then the, then Stephen Lloy get get up, the roadies will pull the table away, and the whole um, song live ended up with uh, with us all at the front of the stage doing high kicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just I'm really really disappointed that we don't have any live concert uh, videos from that's back a then shame, that we, yeah. That's All we got show. is a the, few the TV appearances, you know, a couple right. of appearances on top of the pops, the Kenny Everett show, yeah. which was, yeah, I mean, he's funny as hell, that guy.
1: Were there other bands doing what you were doing? Because uh, I don't know of too many. And I think, if anything, that's kind of back in the 70s, especially, I feel like that was a real calling card. I've seen, uh, for instance, Jethro Tull a couple times now. I didn't see them. I'm not. Old enough to have seen them in the 70s. It was the 80s when I saw them. But they put in a little bit of performance. I remember a, a table coming out at 1.2 and Ian sitting at the table and someone coming out, I think, in a rabbit costume or something. You know, everyone no, I, back then is sort of letting their creativity just flow wherever I it goes. I used to
2: go and see a lot of gigs, especially at Birmingham Town Hall because it was a great little intimate place It seats about uh, 1,300 people. And it's uh, it's a very impressive building with a massive organ at the back of the stage there, and uh, and I used to go there and, and tickets were cheap, very cheap back then. Mm-hmm. So I'd go and see loads and loads of bands, and I honestly don't recall many bands that would put on that kind of a, a show. Maybe Genesis, perhaps.
1: Okay,
2: yeah, true. A, like do that, but no, I mean, I I don't know if we made any conscious effort to make our shows different. We just mm. went with the flow, we had an idea, we thought, "Oh, well, let's do this, and let's just make sure the sound is great. And we were, uh, one of our criticisms was that we sounded so good live, mm. that we were just emulating the album, but we didn't, because we did change the arrangements of quite a lot of the songs for the for, for the live situation, and extrapolated them at the end and what have you. Okay. But um, I remember, I went to see uh, Elton John, uh, Uh, perform at um, Wembley Stadium with the Beach Boys and Elton John comes on and uh, he plays the whole of the uh, Brown Dirt Cowboy album, Song for Song Live. Ooh, wow. And every song sounds just like the album. And I'm thinking, I could have just sat at home <laughs> rather than having to peer through my binoculars to look at those dots <laughs> on the stage down there. I just yes. listen to the album. What am I doing so here? So true. But then the Beach Boys came on and just blew Elton right off the stage. Really? They were immensely amazing, yes. Wow. Yes, that, was, that, was, that made it all worthwhile. Huh.
1: So were you frustrated then by the, I mean, no offense, by the lack of real big success? Did you guys feel like you were really on to something and that crowds just weren't getting it? Or were you like, you know what, this way we get to do what we want to do and whoever comes along comes along and that's okay by us.
2: Well, we, we did really well. I mean, we actually headlined at Birmingham Town Hall and the, the, it was a sold-out show.
1: Oh, good. I was thinking more in terms of record sales so or radio we, play, but that's great. Okay, good.
2: I mean, uh, uh, we actually um, had quite a, a strong following over there. And in fact, good. at the end of that that show at Town Hall, Tony Iommi came backstage to say hello. No after.
3: way. Wow. So
2: we knew that some uh, other band members were checking us out, you know, Yeah. From, Fairly Luminary uh, bands, if you call uh, Black Sabbath sure. a luminary band, I would think so. Absolutely. They were certainly more yeah, successful absolutely. than they we were anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, we also toured with uh, with Thin Lizzy. Really? On the Rocktober tour in 1975. Nice. In fact, I was just looking up the dates for that tour. I googled Rocktober tour, and I came up with an eBay listing right now. It's, it's, uh, it's a picture of a vintage poster from Saturday, the 11th of October, 1975. So that's almost 43 years ago. Oh
3: my gosh.
2: Thin Lizzy with GT Moore and the reggae guitars, plus City Boy, Liverpool Stadium, tickets one pound in advance. Oh my or One pound 25 on the door. Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> now, did you hang out much with Thin Lizzy? Uh, it, do you have a story there? Phil, um, anyone else?
2: Yeah, I used to hang out with Phil Lynott. We we used to go to Stringfellows quite a bit afterwards in London. He was and, quite the uh, quite the character, I tell you. Did but you was,
1: uh, did you guys do a lot of drugs?
2: No. Oh, oh okay. No, a uh, sea boy was never into drugs. Max smoked a bit of uh, hash, but yeah. uh, no, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. Huh. And uh, cocaine okay. was was not even on the radar back then. We were we were we were a drinking band. Right?
1: Okay, got it, got it. More but like his at
2: the his pub. his. A little side story on Mutt. Mm-hmm. We, we get the Thin Leasy Tour because we're on, both on Vertigo, so we're label mates, mm-hmm. so we don't have to pay to get on this tour. Mm-hmm. We're invited to play, but mm-hmm. there's no budget because we're not getting paid. They're saying, you can come on the tour with us. We can't pay you, and you don't have to pay to get on the tour, but there's no budget. So mm-hmm. we didn't have any money for hotels or anything. So we go into overdrive, we reach out to friends Mm -hmm. and relatives in each town who've got a floor we can crash on. Right. And then we thought, wait a minute, we don't have a sound engineer to mix our sound. How are we going to do this? And that was a big problem. Uh Uh-huh. So we thought, well, you know, we could, we just could ask Mutt if he would do it. And we did. And like, he agreed. He Really? Agreed to do it. Mutt went Mutt, on the road with you. Mutt went on the road with us wow. and was our sound engineer and slept on the floor with all the rest of us in various oh, houses. Man. And it was kind of funny because um, we'd wake up in the morning and Mutt was sitting there cross-legged um, meditating because he follows this obscure Indian religion. Okay. And then we get to Glasgow and a couple of us chat up the Lizzie roadies and say, hey, can we sleep on the floor in your hotel room? Uh-huh. Oh yeah, no problem. Come on guys. <laughs> but the the roadie said, Look, we've got all the gear in the van here. It's Glasgow. I think we should take it take the van out, and find a a, a, a lay by outside the city and, and park there and we'll just sleep in the van because it'll be safer. We don't want the van being broken into.
3: Yeah.
2: And so Mutt says, Oh great, I'll come with you guys. I don't mind. <laughs> I'll hang out with you guys in the van, sure. (laughs) He just didn't mind roughing it. That is great. He was just really remarkable, really. Do you keep in touch with him at all? I haven't been in touch with him for a while. He called. Remember after 9-11, there was that plane crash in Queens. Mm -hmm. And Mutt wasn't sure where I was living. And he called up to find out if I was okay. That's
1: really nice.
2: I lived in Queens. And we were on the phone for two hours. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, I think I think he I might have been in in Swiss, Switzerland by then because yeah. he bought a castle in Switzerland, built a studio there. The last time I really saw him was when I was running Hire for Zomba, which is a, a an audio rental company that I set up. And uh, Mutt calls me and says, Chris, uh, i got Shania here. She wants to do some rehearsing in, in the studio. And this is when he lived up in the. Uh, uh, up in New York State. He had they brought the property where they shot the film on Golden Pond. Really? Built a studio there oh, and then okay. knocked the old house down which was falling apart and the locals went completely ballistic about that. Wow. Uh, but, um, and he said, can you can you get me a little PA system? Just buy buy me a little PA system and bring it up here so that I can set it up in the studio for Shania to rehearse. I said, oh, sure, I can do that. Yeah. So I drove up there. It took me about four hours to drive up there because there had been big rainstorms and all the roads were washed out and whatever. And I hung out with him there and walked around the property and he's got this beautiful lake. And I said, yeah, I know you're not gonna let me fish for trout in this lake, are you? He said, oh, no fishing allowed. Because he was totally into, he was a vegetarian, mm-hmm. totally into not harming any kind of animal, fish, or bird in any way. Mm-hmm. So fishing fishing in his lake was completely not allowed. Interesting, wow.
1: <laughs> yeah. Did you hang out with Shania too? Uh, yeah, she was there. Okay. Yeah. Is she just oh. as beautiful in real life as she seems on oh, TV? Oh yes, she,
2: she was. She was lovely.
1: Good. I've uh, never liked Mutt, her music, unfortunately, but she obviously is gorgeous. So,
2: well, Mutt, uh, Mutt made her a big star, he and sure then did. shot her shot her down in flames. It's sure, a shame.
1: He sure did.
2: When you shame, start, but...
1: you know. Speaking of that, when you see Mutt go on to have all this massive success, I mean, did you? Is there any kind of twinge of jealousy, or is it more pride? Like, hey, that guy started with us we helped him get here.
2: Well, pretty much. I mean, uh, I actually think we were very privileged to have had him as a producer, uh, knowing the success that he went on to have, and especially privileged that he would want to work with us on five albums.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
2: Even though he probably realized at that point, even after 5705, which, which was only a number eight hit in England and number 27 in Billboard and Number eleven in Australia and number one in Israel for two hey, weeks. Hey,
1: <laughs> there you go, Israel. Nice. <laughs> Even though
2: we were, we pretty much became a, just a one-hit band. Yeah. He he didn't care. I think he just enjoyed working with us because our music was was Good. so varied, and he loved the challenge of taking each song as it was, and arranging it the way that he felt right. And yeah. there is uh, one song that is uh, it's off the uh, the third album. Young Men Gone West mm-hmm. with the mannequin on front except that a lot of people didn't think it was a mannequin they kept calling the record label saying who's that model we want to book her yeah. I didn't realize
1: that was a mannequin either
2: until you it's just said mannequin. that
1: oh, yep. oh.
2: yeah okay. uh, it was a song called Millionaire which is the last song yeah, I like
0: talking to friends but through the eyes of a video scared to lose' surrounded by our fools you're wanting just to shout it out but there's nothing left to talk about overhearing chants
2: Now, that is one of my favorites, too. And, of course, Mutt says, you know, I think we need to rent a harmonium for this. And, of course, there is a there is a place in London, I think it was keyboard instrument rental, um, keyboard rentals or whatever that had harmoniums. So they they delivered it all the way out to Rockfield in South Wales for us. Wow. And then Mutt says, you know, we can go one step better. And you think, I think we should, find one of these northern colliery brass bands and book them for a session
3: mm.
2: and we thought sounds interesting yeah and who'd have thought that song now works amazingly well and the brass band sounds fantastic yeah it. it sure does well,
1: that's incredible
2: so you listen to that song and then you listen to something like uh, the first track on, on the first side of that album dear g and i'm nervous which is an all-out uh, rocker try and compare those two songs and there's no way except for maybe the sound of the vocal harmonies there's no way that you'd think it was the same band
1: well that's true for a lot of your stuff i mean there's it's equal parts sweet and queen and ELO and yes. And I mean, every little thing is thrown in there. Uh, That's what makes it so special and unique. Let's talk about 5705 for a minute because, and I didn't realize this until recently, originally that song was called Turn On To Jesus.
2: That's right. It was written by Lo and Steve based on an experience they had in Kansas City. Uh, now what? Kansas City, Kansas City straddles two states. one is dry or one is wet. Ah. So they, we were staying in the dry side, so you there were no bars. You couldn't go out and get a beer. Mm-hmm. But there were there were these private drinking clubs, and Steve and Lowell were invited into this club. and it was just a very strange scene because there were there were these very scantily clad women dancing on tabletops to gospel music hmm. and so they thought well they came up with this idea that these women were prost- prost- prostituting themselves to try and turn you onto religion hmm. so Whoa. turn onto jesus was born <laughs> now the this song was already released in germany and holland as turn onto jesus as was going up the charts there really then we get a call from the bbc and they say um yes, we really like this song, but we can't play it because of the sexual religious overtones of the lyrics. What we suggest is that you actually rewrite the lyrics, re-record the song, and then we think you just might have a hit on your hands. And the mighty power of the BBC made us think, we're going we're to do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're going to do this. And we sat, in a hotel room, I think it was in Germany, it might have been when we were supporting Manfred Man's Earth Band on a little tour there mm-hmm. and um, we rewrote the lyrics and be- it became a real innocuous, innocent telephone yeah. love song so I don't we even know speech what speech 5705
1: room. is, by the way
2: just the looking. number, it just, it just rolls off the tongue that That's a it. nice sequence of numbers, basically Okay,
1: that's it.
2: Okay I don't, I don't think it came from anywhere, okay. although it it turned out that there was a phone number in the uh, in the Polygram Record Company offices, that ended in five seven oh five, and for whatever reason, the fans managed to get a hold of this number and started calling this number like crazy.
1: <laughs> and I read that the the dot the numbers at the beginning of the song are Mercury Records number. Whatever your numbers you're punching in at the very beginning goes to Mercury Records. Is that right?
2: That's what I'm saying. Polygram, yeah. Polygram was oh, the, the I you meant, okay, label. Yes, yes. Vertigo was the label in in London, and Mercury was our label in the states.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah.
2: So. Um, but you so anyway, didn't know that ahead of time. I, I don't think so. I don't Weird. can't imagine that we would have known that.
1: Oh, okay.
3: Okay. I
2: don't know for sure, but. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, it, it was we pulled the uh, the turn on to Jesus copies, and and um, there are still a lot of those around. You can find them. And then re-released it as five seven oh five. So they and were the, right. BBC was the, the right. BBC said, "All right, we think you're uh, we think you're good here." And uh, when do you want to come and do Top of the Pops? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Even better.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
2: Yeah, and um, and so we had ourselves a, a little uh, a little hit, That's number great. eight.
1: <laughs> when you were on top, top of the Pops, were there other bands performing that same day that you got to kind of hobnob with?
2: Um well there were, there were other artists but I don't remember us meeting any and oh, hanging no. out with okay. them very much no okay. uh, and I did mean, you
1: uh, oh go ahead please uh,
2: when when in in another of my lives where my job was looking after Tight Fit which was a a group that um Zomba had put together in London when I was working for Zomba mm-hmm. I was became their sort of tour manager come uh, scheduling guy they were put together to, to front a single, which was the remake of The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which be- became number one in England for four weeks. pop so i was back at top of the pops, but i was backstage doing all this stuff and, mm-hmm. I, and uh i bumped into fellow brummies duran duran oh and nice i bumped into paul mccartney i've got his autograph on the back of my zomba management business card there you go nice but there, it's funny that song um, the lion sleeps tonight they used session guys to create the song oh, and really? the, the, the guy that they booked to sing it was roy ward who was the drummer, the second drummer with City Boy, who sang the lead on 5705, because Mutt thought he had a much better voice for that mm. song. And Roy was sworn to secrecy over this, but it eventually came out. Yeah. And when I when I took Tight Fit, which which ended up being um, uh, a guy and two girls who, were, uh, uh, who won the audition to become part of the band, I took them on the road and we used uh, the Q-tips as their music arrangers and, and backing band. Q-Tips hmm. was a band that included Paul Young.
1: Oh, right,
2: right. Okay. So we, we were doing all these gigs in these little seaside towns, no big major places, just little sea, seaside towns. We did a gig in Scarborough. And at the end of the gig, one of these uh, tabloid uh, news agent, uh, n- newspaper guys, I think it might have been the Daily Mirror or The Sun or what have you, came up to me and said, all right, mate, come on. Where's the uh, Where's the revox? I know they weren't singing live. I need to I need to see see where, uh, Wait a minute. I said, look, wait. There's no revox here. There isn't even a bloody cassette deck. Right. I mean, they were singing live. I'm on the road with them every night. I watch them do this. These guys are professionals. So he's walking around scratching his head, going, Oh well, shit. <laughs> they didn't believe that, that right. type, it was a was a real band, but no they could way. do it. And oh, then right. at the end of that tour, Paul Young records "Wherever I Lay My Hat," and everything changes. Yeah, everything changes. And I actually saw Paul Young because he performed at Daryl Hall's little club that he's got. Yeah, uh, up the road, Daryl's house. Yeah, and he came in to perform there, and I actually bought tickets and went up to see him because I hadn't seen him in decades. Right, and we had a had a fun little chat. Oh, and, good. You know, Paul
1: had a hit with a hall out song I do every time you go away every I just saw him away. here in Denver uh, about a month ago maybe two months ago with mid juror on right. uh, they were going on tour together that that may have been the same thing you saw but yeah that yeah. was uh
2: that was a great show and of course being it as it was Daryl's place Daryl would sometimes just show up there and I was thinking well god if Paul's going to sing that song I'll yeah. bet Daryl will just pop up and and join him on stage But unfortunately, Hall & Oates were on tour, Hmm. and so he wasn't available, so he didn't show up. But But that's the crazy thing. Hall & Oates are still touring. We we toured with them in 1978. Those guys are still going.
1: I just saw them a few months ago as well. Um, Tell us some Hall & Oates stories. uh, Um, They're my all-time favorite. And uh, I've had John Oates on here, and he was such a nice, uh, sweet, gentlemanly man. And Daryl seems a little prickly. And you'll no, have to you have I, to tell I, us what I, your experience was.
2: I would say that it was the opposite, really. But Really um, When when we first met Mutt and we were chatting away with him, he said there's this group in the States named Daryl Hall and John Oates. You need to give them a listen. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Hall and Oates were unheard of in the in the UK. Mm-hmm. Eventually they became megastars over there too. But this was way back before they were even heard of. So my father um, worked for the BBC, amongst other things. In fact, he was a, he was a performer in The Archers, which was a, a radio soap opera. He was also a radio DJ, and they sent him all these singles. And so there were hundreds of these singles lying around the house, and I would go through them and listen to them. There were Sinatra, there were Elvis, and a whole bunch of them. And I thought, well, these might be worth something, you know. So I asked him if he needed them for anything, and he said, no, no, I don't need them anymore. You can do with them what you want. So I'd pack a hundred singles into a big bag, and I'd take them down into downtown Birmingham, and there's a record store called Reddington's Rare Records. I think it's gone now. And they specialized in selling used records. And I'd hand over this bag of singles at the front desk and say, can you let me know how much credit I can have for these? And I'll bet there were some gems in there, especially if it was Elvis or Sinatra yeah, or whatever, probably worth a bit of money, you know. Yeah. And they'd go through them, and about half an hour later they'd say, okay, uh, Chris, you can, uh, you can, you've got about £110 credit here. I thought, holy shit. And they <laughs> were selling albums in perfect used condition for £2.50 apiece. So I would just go and gather all these albums that I'd seen that I liked, uh-huh. including a Hall Oates one, which was bigger than both of us, was the album.
1: Oh, good one. That's
2: good. And then, then and I wouldn't have to spend any money. I thought well, I'm building an album collection of records I want to listen to yeah. and just getting rid of dad's all crap at the same time. What a great idea. <laughs> so I took all these albums home and put on the Hall Oates album, and I thought, these guys are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And eventually using the same method, built up my collection and got every single Hall Oates album that was ever released. Yeah. And so to end up actually doing a tour with them was, was remarkable. And, um, that's crazy. And, and
1: uh, and you did become somewhat friendly. I mean, I don't know if you kept in touch after this or
2: really, no, not really. We would play these little nowhere towns where there wasn't even a club to go to after the gig. So what would happen is, uh, they would book an extra hotel room, and everyone would bring the leftover booze back from the dressing mm-hmm. room, and we'd just hang out in the hotel room and party. And yeah. two, at least two or three times, I ended up sitting on the bottom of one of the beds chatting with Daryl because he sure. was just really friendly. Yeah. John, Oates, John Oates was never never around to be seen at these these little really. Gaffes. I don't huh. know what, what. I wonder he did. why. I don't know whether he was the guy who got all the women or whatever, and took huh. them back to his hotel room. Perhaps I don't know. I don't
1: know. Did you notice any like tension between them? What was the, sort of the dynamic of their relationship at that time?
2: Um, I didn't notice any, anything? anything other than okay. other than other than they the fact that they just weren't partying together okay. after the gig. Hmm. Okay, but it was it was a fascinating tour, the one that we did in 1978, because. Uh, the band that they had with them was the band that played on Elton John's Rock of the Westies album. Oh. Callum Way, Rod, Roger Pope, and Kenny Passarelli. I don't and think we I knew that. All, all Brits. Oh, yeah. So, so we ended up chatting more with them than, uh, than Hall. It's really because okay. huh. fellow Brits. But okay. uh, just briefly, um, uh, another part of the story, seeing as I brought up my father and, uh, and the Archers. Yeah. When, when I first met Stephen Lowell, I discovered that Lowell's father was the late Edward J. Mason, who had created The Archers and written all the early episodes. Really? My father had been an actor in The Archers for 27 years. They wrote him out of the show when I was in my uh, mid to late teens, I think. And that show is still going now. It's the longest-running radio soap opera ever. You don't hear it in the States, but... uh, but you might hear it if you go to one of the BBC uh, okay. radio websites. But it's just remarkable. It's about huh. a, 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 a fictitious little farming village in England. Wow! And who knew? I know. That is great. Wow! Talk about talk about coincidences. That's one. Yeah. Big one.
1: No kidding. Wow. Okay. So what? Now the next album. This becomes. This is basically your swan song. You you choose the day the earth caught fire. By the way, I should say the name.
0: Stood outside, the world was left
1: this is a concept album was it was it meant to be telling a story
2: well here's what we used to do you see we had all kinds of different snippets of of potential songs and sometimes we would say well we really like this bit but it doesn't stand up on its own hmm. so if we add this bit and this bit then we've got one of our sort of mega concept songs mm-hmm. and it would we, we didn't approach this album necessarily with the idea of it being a concept album in fact when you when you look at it closely really the only two songs that are anything to do with the potential end of the world type scenario are the first two after that it's all kind of interrupted Worst well thing. i mean it's not there's not really anything that, no. that ties the other songs in to, to being a, a, anything like as a, okay. a recurring story through the whole album
1: yeah but that's true for a lot of you know not every concept album is a perfect narrative it's often it's often loose ends like that i just wondered if that was the idea going into that album as well
2: um Um, i don't know what what uh what your favorite song is off that album but i really honestly think that modern love affair should have been approached as a potential single yeah it should have been a single really it's It's just so catchy
1: yeah that track too. There is a video for The Day the Earth Caught Fire that's goofy as all get out. Was uh, was the idea of making videos, I mean I know MTV hadn't quite come along yet, but some, especially British artists were making those, you know, Rod Stewart had a million of them, these little yeah. uh, videos. Was that ever brought up as being like a focus for you guys? Like we need to start attaching videos to a lot of these songs? Or was that just something you sort of did as an afterthought?
2: You know, I'm trying to think Uh, what the idea was behind making this video because that was really the only video that we consciously went out of our way to actually create. Mm. So it could be that uh, when this, when did MTV start? That's the question.
1: 81, started in 81.
2: 81, so this was 79. The first
1: little bit of MTV though they were sort of pulling, they didn't have much content so they were pulling little clips like yours or you know, Cliff Richard. Even the first video of all time, "Video Killed the Radio Star." That song didn't come out in '81. That came out in '79. But they had it available to play, and so they just did.
2: Well, so and, it could be that that was why the the record label said, "We need to make a video." Yeah. Because we we can probably get it on MTV or or, or whatever other show yeah. they uh, they had access to. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we were living in uh, in rented houses in the West Nyack. And Piermont area at that point, because we we were um, after the recording of this album we st- we decided to stay in the States because we were doing a, a special tax year out of England anyway at that mm-hmm, point, mm-hmm. and we thought we were going to be doing a lot more touring in the States. As it happened, we ended up doing a tour of Canada supporting Prism and not much else. Mm. So um, mm. that uh, that didn't really pay off. But of oh, course, bummer. it paid off in the fact that that's where I ended up staying. Yeah, here. yeah. Why but, did you um, leave? Uh, well, uh, there was a democratic vote between the the other four members of the band that Steve and I shouldn't be in the band anymore.
0: Really?
2: And there had been a lot of um, dissent brewing because Steve and I were of the thought, you know, 5705, even though we grew to not really enjoy playing it very much because we'd heard it so often, but it yeah. was the one thing that opened a lot of doors for us, that was our hit. We need to really have one or two more hits. It would be the right thing to do, because yeah. right now we're not making enough money for the band to exist. So um, we had this argument that we need to write more hits, and the other guys were saying, no, we really like these long concept songs that we've mm. been creating, mm. and we would say to them, we're not Pink Floyd, we're not yes. Yeah. We can't get away with this. Yeah. It's not gonna happen. We have to have more hits so that we can become more visible. Yeah and that was the root of the uh, the break the breakup, mm. and uh, that in had the end, to have well, stung.
1: Uh, were you pretty miffed? At the yeah, time?
2: because Steve and I were two of the original members of the band. Yeah, exactly. And uh, for for it, uh, and Steve and Loll had been friends since they were seven years old, and then they didn't speak for for decades after that. Mm. But they've they've made up again now. Good. And yeah, it's it was it was not good, but we could almost feel it coming because. The band wasn't getting on together very well at that point. Yeah. Which which is really a shame. That is a shame. Um,
1: When it comes to an end, what? Now, you go on to work for Zomba Music after this, but I don't know if that happened immediately. And the reason I ask is because, and this is a question I ask a lot of my guests, is I'm always curious what that next morning is like. When you, for anyone who's, you know, been used to going to work at a certain job for a while and then they get laid off or fired or whatever, that next morning when you don't have to go to work is a, there's a, there's a weird feeling involved. And I wondered if that occurred to you, like, I can no longer make a living as a musician. I have to do something else. Did you have a moment like that?
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I did actually go and meet with one other guy in the city who was a guitar player and we hung out and jammed and It didn't feel right, and I I, I thought, you know, I don't know if the rest of my career is going to be worthwhile me attempting to be a a bass player, because I've only ever known this one band. Mm -hmm. That's where I learned to play bass. I've I've never been in a cover band, so I could never sort of play a whole bunch of different songs. So I decided it's time to move on, and moving on meant getting a green card so I could Mm. legally work in the States so i had a girlfriend who had met in chicago she was an american citizen one of the half million polish who live in chicago Mm. and that's the largest population outside Warsaw, by the way
1: interesting i didn't realize okay
2: yeah Uh, so we eventually got married at city hall kept it secret for two and a half years but (sighs) i immediately applied for a green card so I i actually had to uh get uh, two tests for syphilis, one in order to get married and one in order to apply for a green card. You had to get syphilis tests back then.
1: <laughs> well, luckily you passed, I assume. Yes. So <laughs>
2: we ended up renting a little apartment in Guttenberg, which is right across the river from Manhattan, opposite about 75th Street in New Jersey for $325 a month, including heat and hot water. Oh, my God! She got a job as a receptionist at Sterling Sound, the mastering studio. Hmm. I got a job as a messenger and I drive my little AMC spirit out to JFK to Swissair, pick up, uh, in, hepatitis infected livers packed in dry ice and deliver them to the hospitals on the Upper East Side oh uh, for research.
1: Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you then... had to
1: have been thinking like just a, a few months ago, I was performing in front of thousands of people and now I'm driving a van. Does that bother you? Is that a hard thing to swallow? are you kind of glad to be away from it all?
2: I was of the opinion that it was probably the right thing to, mm, for me to uh, be, uh, be doing at that point. I, okay. And I was driving my own car, not a van. And oh. I'd been to Crazy Eddie's and had it kitted out with this most incredible sound system. <laughs> so I didn't mind driving in the traffic <laughs> oh, in New York. Because if I got stuck in a jam, I just cranked up the music and <laughs> yes, sat back. I love yoo-hoo! it. So it was I love kind it. of fun. That's great. But... But um, then I then I f- eventually went back to England to uh, visit my folks because I hadn't seen them for seventeen months. Because while I was applying for a green card, you can't leave the country. Mm, sure. So I stopped off in London on the way and met with Ralph Simon, who was Clive Calder's uh, uh, right-hand man at Zomba, just to see what was going on. And. I was there f- with Clive uh, Ralph for two hours, and he was on the phone for most of the time to other people, and I thought, well, yeah, I don't know if I want to be in this crazy business. Yeah. And then he offered me a job. Mm. He called me up and said, I've got a job for you. Let me know if you're interested. And it was, uh, it was for tight fit. Mm. And I sort-, sort of said, well, you know, I mean, we've pretty much got our roots put down in the States now, so maybe not. So I went back, chatted with Tisha, My wife and and I said. She said, "Look, this might be your only chance to be be stay in the music business when you know how much you loved it. So why don't you just give it a shot? Go over there. Start working for Zomba. If it works out, I'll come and join you. Meanwhile, I'll just stay here in the apartment and keep working at Sterling Sound." Wow. So I went, came over to England in 1982, and two days after I got to England. The Lion Sleeps Tonight single reaches number one and stays, oh my gosh. There, stays there for four weeks. So I launched into this crazy situation where I'm taking the band all over to do these interviews and TV shows and what have you. And we're getting mobbed by fans everywhere. Yes. I'm thinking, gosh, I, I, I should have been trained as a bodyguard because it was <laughs> just nuts. We did TV shows in East Germany, in Poland, in um, in Hungary, I think it yeah. was. We did a, a TV show in Brussels with Sacha Distel. I don't know, I don't know if you know who I Sacha don't. Distel is. Uh-uh. He was never big over here, but he was a massive popular crooner guy in, uh, from France. Very popular in Europe. Wow. Uh, it, was, it just worked out. Right. Yeah, we shot videos in Venice and Saint-Tropez. I mean, it was just, it was just oh a lot of gosh. fun. Oh, my gosh. And then what that break. kind of fizz, that kind of fizzled at the end of 82. It didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did that tour, I mentioned, with um, uh, Paul Young as well.
1: Were you always with Tight Fit? Because there were other bands like I Love Q-Feel and Flock of Seagulls. They were both around on the label yeah. at that time. Did uh, you hang out with them very much?
2: Well, I ended up managing the studios, you see. Uh, so okay. I would see these guys all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to know the, all those guys, and I managed the studios for a while. Okay. Uh, which uh, which was kind of fun because we grew from two studios to five in the space of about one year. Hmm. So it's just nothing but building studios and yeah. running studios and handling bookings and whatever. Yeah. Although Mutt comes in with uh, with the cars to do Heartbeat City. <sighs> in- uh, and he's in for eight months uh-huh. so uh, for about a year or so there were no bookings to be taken because all the other studio the second studio was completely booked out with all the jive records projects like back to the 60s or what have you Interesting. and um, and yeah so my job was to make sure that uh, that the cars had everything they needed in the fridge you know in the way uh-huh. of vodka and what have you that i uh, i went to the local uh, the local Costco over there, which is called Macro back then. Uh-huh. Now you've got Costco in England. But, uh, yeah, okay. Got to Was up.
1: Mutt um, throwing you any kind of a bone by bringing them over there to perform there? I don't know if he's like, if that's a, I don't know enough about the business to know if he's like helping you out or like, hey, let's keep, uh, Chris is a friend of mine. He'll take good care of you. Let's go over there. I trust this guy. Was there oh, any of that?
2: Mutt's affairs were managed by, ralph simon and clive calder of zombies true
1: see. true yeah good point i yeah, forgot about that You're right. so of
2: course of course clive's saying hey Mutt, um if you uh, and, and clive had advised him not to do the cars because he didn't think it was going to be much of a, uh, a remunerative project mm-hmm. for him but but matt says no i want to do them he said well why don't you tell him to come over here and you can do it in battery and then we can make a bit of extra money out of them from the studio time so <laughs> matt says yeah sure why not because i know you guys will look after me And uh, I trust Chris to take care of uh, of making sure everything's cool in the studio for us. Then fast forward to Christmas of that year, and Mutt is doing the 13th remix of Drive, which was the big hit the cars had. Yep. And it's sounding great, and I have a cassette of the rough mix where he's got the tablas a little higher in the mix, and I thought, this is really, really good. But he's in the middle of his 13th mix, and he doesn't like it. Uh, and eventually, I got a call from Rick Okasek, and he said, "Chris, I need you to make safeties of all the two-inch masters and send them over to Electric Lady in New York, because we're going to get uh, Mike Shipley to mix it for us. Mutt has lost the plot." So they took they took Mutt <laughs> okay. off the project. Really, off and, that one song or the whole thing? No, off the whole mix. They took really? it completely off the project. Yeah, and Mutt approached me at one point before this happened. And he said, Chris, I need to come in tomorrow to uh, continue mixing. Can you give me the keys to the studio? I know it's Christmas Day, but I said, Mutt, it's Christmas Day. You need to take a day off. I'm not giving you the keys. I stood up to Mutt and just said, no, I'm not giving you the keys. (laughs) Thinking I might get a call from Clive saying, what are you doing? You can't say no to Mutt. I said, but he didn't call him. so good. Much, okay, much good. Took the good.
1: Tell me about Rick Okasic, real quick. I uh, he's another one I imagine a little bit like uh, Daryl Hall, although you're telling me Daryl wasn't like this, maybe possibly a little standoffish, a little separate from the rest of the group. Um, was that your impression at all?
2: Not really, they all seem to be really nice chaps. We got on oh, very well, and um, I sort of was invited to parties that they were invited to as well. So we kind of hung out socially, and it was uh, nice. it was kind of cool. I mean, I was there. I, I saw them every day in the studio. Yeah. I was there almost uh, seven days a week. Was it, he the
1: married to Paulina at that point? I know she's in the video for Drive. I can't remember if they were married then or that's when they met.
2: Good question. Oh, I could have to okay. pass on that. I can't okay. answer that
1: question. Yeah. Boy, you, you're, you're good at being around men who prefer to stay out of the spotlight who managed to land really beautiful wives. You're right there. Ha, ha. You have a knack, you know? So Dream Hire. Let's uh, let's talk about Dream Hire for a minute. Eventually, you see the writing, I guess, on the wall that renting out a studio equipment is maybe the way to go. How does oh, this, this a- happen?
2: This, again, is a great segue from the cars because Mutt was renting in all this gear because the battery studios were... Uh, very poorly equipped back then you know they literally had a, um, a an eventide instant flanger and an instant phaser and that's about it no ams gear no lexicon gear and uh, people would come in to look at the studio to consider booking to do a mix and they'd say you've got nothing in here how am i supposed to mix i'd say why you just got to rent it what really so mm-hmm. Mutt was renting in lots and lots of equip- equipment from uh, another rental company called uh, Audio effects, I think it was called. And I saw this happening and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we could be renting this gear onto Mm -hmm. the sessions so that eventually the gear would be paid for through renting and we could then maybe put it into the studios to increase the uh, uh, appeal of the studios. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Clive and I said, Clive, you need to give me some money so I can go buy this gear. I think we should uh, do this because we could make money out of it. Of course, if you say to Clive, you can make money out of doing something, he'll say, well, (laughs) sounds like a plan. Go ahead. (laughs) So I was pretty much given carte blanche. I'd have to go to the the CFO if I needed to spend a lot of money. Like, for example, when I started to have to buy those big digital tape machines like the Mitsubishi X880s, because they were over a 100,000 quid. So... I would say to him, look, I've got a booking already across the street at power plant. They've got uh, this guy coming in and he wants to rent it for three months. i going got a bu- an immediate three month rental, which will make us this much money. And he said, mm-hmm. OK, hmm. send me the invoice. <laughs> so, wow. Zomba would just buy all this bloody gear and I yeah. could spend however much I want buying whatever I felt I needed. That's it incredible. was just an open checkbook all the way. Yeah. So I so I started it up and I, but I uh, and I, I wanted it to not sound like it was connected to battery because there's a lot of competition between the studios in London. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to call it battery rentals or Zomba rentals. And there were already companies called London Sound Center. And there was an audio rents over there for a while. And then they closed down. Based, it was a branch of the one in L.A. At the time, I had this um, rather attractive assistant whose name was Tina Foxwell. Her nickname was Tina Dreamer, so I came up with the name Dream Hire. Perfect. In in England, you use the word hire for hiring inanimate objects like cars and what have you. When it's different over here, you use the word rent for that purpose. But the name seemed to translate over to you, and people understood what it it meant when I set it up in New York. Very nice. So that was in '84. I set it up in London, and uh, it uh, it. did did pretty well. And I said, well, let's, let's, let's promote it outside uh, uh, Zomba." And I got a, a pager and had a little rate card printed and mailed it out to all the studios and started doing business. Wow. When you go
1: back to the studios and you, you know, people are renting out your equipment and everything like that. Do you ever have a, a twin, not jealousy? I don't know if that's the right thing, but sort of, do you ever feel nostalgic? Like I used to be the guy in the studio recording this stuff, or are you let, feeling this new business venture of mine is doing so well, I don't even think about that stuff anymore.
2: That's right, yeah, I mean, this was my, uh, yet another of my many lives was yeah. was running running DreamHire to the point where Clive decided that they wanted to set up branches in uh, in the States. And so he offered me that job and I eventually took it and came moved to New York in 88, found someone else to run DreamHire in London kissed that lot goodbye, mm. threw a big leaving party on a boat uh, moored on the Thames. Samantha Fox came to the party. Ooh, nice. She was one of the jive artists. You know, She she yeah. she'd walked into the jive records offices one day and said, I want to become a singer. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> the, the A&R guy, Steve says, uh, okay, we don't know if you can sing, but we'll find a way. We'll figure it out. Sign here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, a piece of equipment that, that, because this was way before Pro Tools and way before Auto-Tune, and she wasn't the greatest of singers back then, uh, she might have improved now with a bit of vocal coaching, but, uh, but there was one piece of equipment called the Publisson Infernal Machine, it was the only piece of French equipment I think we ever owned, mm. French made, and that did the trick, it was able to take vocals and tune them in.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah, wow. so that was the secret of uh, okay. Samantha, that's Fox's, Samantha uh, Fox. Success. Now let touch me tell me, you I want me I want you buggy <laughs> if you want to play it. That's the song.
1: That's the one. I figured. That's the one that's the only song of hers that comes to mind, honestly. I don't know anything else.
2: No, um, that's the only one I can remember.
1: So let me tell you, I am not a gearhead at all. So I I asked this question because for anyone who's listening that is a gearhead, I want to know what like some of your more Popular or rented pieces of equipment would have been but I'll give you a forewarning if you go too far down a rabbit hole You're gonna lose me completely because I I have no Comprehension of that stuff, but for the people who listen who might be interested What were some of the most important pieces that you know would get rented out the most often?
2: Oh um, well vintage tube microphones like uh, Telefunken Elam 251s and Neumann u47 tubes were very popular hmm. um, because uh, a lot of the uh, studios didn't necessarily have those in their inventory. And if a, a vocalist came in and the engineer said, we've got to have one of these mics, then uh, the studio will say, well, we don't have one. So they'd say, well, you're going to have to rent one then. Mm-hmm. So the studio would rent it in and add it to the bill. And uh, a lot of that vintage equipment like Teletronics LA-2As and especially Fairchild 670s, mm-hmm. these Fairchilds were big, big old compressors that were made for rec- for radio stations, they had a whole bunch of tubes in them. They were really fragile and took a lot of maintaining. Dreamhire ultimately owned seven of these, mm. and uh, we would get them for we'd pay three or four thousand dollars for them. When I sold the last two at the beginning of 2016, when I started to liquidate, one of them I'd bought. I bought it for twenty-two thousand off some guy in New York. And I sold it for forty-four thousand. Wow! Jeez. Basically, they're antiques. Yeah, and people just have to have them. Yeah. And, uh, and
1: so, when you bought a piece, let's let's take a, a piece like that, uh, for example. Back in the day, you say you bought a, one of those for two or three thousand dollars. How much mm-hmm. would you then rent it out for?
2: It varied. I mean, in the, at the end, I was renting it out in New York for two hundred and eighty-five a day.
1: A day, okay.
2: Because it was it was uh, very difficult to find a Fairchild that sounded really good in good working order. Hmm. So uh, we cornered the market there Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that, that one I was talking about, I bought it off another rental guy. Okay. And uh, I bought it in 98, I think, and sold it in 2016. And it earns about 102000 in rentals in its lifetime. Wow. Okay. So That's fascinating work.
1: to me. Okay. And you've got, you know, hundreds of pieces of equipment, each one not every single one is probably as successful as that particular piece, but you're making a markup, you know, you're buying them all for, it's like buying and selling anything, a used record or a used car or whatever, but you're, uh, that's sustaining a pretty nice lifestyle for you for many, many years until 2016 or so when you decided to kind of close it up. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was making a reasonable salary. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Say that, uh, I actually bought the company off Zomba in, uh, in 2003, okay. because in 2001, Clive sold the remaining shares of, of the Zomba Group to BMG for 2.74 billion cash, oh, goodness. moved to Grand Cayman, set up a foundation and then started building schools back in his native South Africa. So he's mm-hmm. doing good stuff with the uh, with the money he made. Good. Uh, and so I approached uh, BMG and said, would you be interested in selling the company to me? And they said, well, yes, because. You're not part of our modus operandi. We're not, you're not a record label. You're not a publishing company. We don't really need you. Mm-hmm. So uh, we would probably shut you down anyway. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, well, let me do this. Yeah. So I had to buy everything off them, all the inventory from New York wow. and Nashville, which I'd set up, and uh, got a Merrill Lynch loan and did the deal and mm-hmm. always thought, am I doing the right thing? Because after 9-11, there were a number of recording studios in in the Manhattan went down from about 60 to about 10
3: Oh boy!
2: and uh i'm thinking am am i buying a company that's going to die on me because all yeah. the studios that were renting from us are dying out or what but somehow or other we managed to survive
3: good
2: i had to go through a period of cutting staff and reducing salaries and stuff like yeah. that and then i decided i'm going to have to start renting dj gear yeah. i'm going to go on ebay and buy a whole bunch of vintage looking mics because i'm getting calls from companies who want them for photo shoots and video shoots and wow. and what have you and films and and whatever so i had to just keep finding ways yeah. to expand into other areas which were all part and parcel of the rental business
3: yeah
2: i used to joke thinking you know we've got the whole um uh, framework set up. We could rent anything. I could go out and buy bouncy castles and rent them <laughs> if I wanted. <wouldn't>. True. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's the same
2: business model.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, now it ends last year, right? Is this bittersweet? I I think I read in the article that you sent over to me that you're actually feeling quite content about this. I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to move on. Probably like you did with your music career too. It's ready to move on to the next thing. What has the next thing been? What have you been doing since? You know,
2: one thing that's been interesting is that every decision that I've made has been one from the heart, which has said to me, your ticker speaking, it's telling you it feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. so that's what I've done. I've I reached the point where I was fed up of taking phone calls from people saying, hello, yes, I want to rent a mic, please. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are you using it for? Oh, it's for a show. Mm-hmm. Okay, does it need to be wired or wireless? Oh, I don't know. What does that mean? Yeah, oh, it's... do you have a sound system? Oh, I'm not sure. I'll have to check. It just goes on like that, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't need this crap anymore. Right. This is getting boring. Yeah. So it just felt the right, like the right time to shut down because I, I was discovering that I was selling off surplus equipment and it was going to keep the company running and I'm thinking if I keep doing this I'll end up with nothing. Yeah. So yeah. let me let me close the company down, sell off the equipment for as much as I think I can and put that money in the bank and see how long that will be able to continue to pay my salary for which at this point is about another two years. Okay. I'm signing on for Medicare this year because I turned 65 and next mm. year I'm signing off for social security. Somehow or other, we'll find a way to muddle We'll find through, a way. Know? Yeah.
1: Good for <laughs> yeah. you, man. And you live outside, you still live outside of New York city.
2: 28 years. We've lived in Tarrytown. Good for you. We've got this great little house. That's right on the Hudson river, right overlooking the Tappan Zee bridge, which is now the new Tappan Zee bridge, mm. which they're calling the Mario Cuomo bridge, but we're not <laughs> calling it that. We're calling it the new Tappan Zee <laughs> bridge. And, there's a brief story, which again uh, is music business oriented, about this house. When when uh, we first looked at the house, we thought this is great. Let's put an offer in. And someone else had an offer in, so we put our offer in, and uh, everything was going well. And then Tisha was riding around while I was working, riding around with a real estate agent, looking at other houses in the area. Mm-hmm. And so they were talking about this house, and. Uh, and the real estate person said, oh, yeah, um, I know who's got an offering on that house. His name's Michael Jones, and he's something to do with Marathon Recording Studios. So Tish, of course, gets on the phone at me right away. And says, who's this Michael Jones at Marathon? I said, I'm not sure, but if it's anything to do with Marathon, they've probably got no money because Marathon is always owing us money. It's always really difficult getting paid by them. Turns out that Michael Jones was the real name of Kashif. Oh, Kashif, sure. Chief is a record producer who worked in the early days with Whitney Houston yes he did a lot of his stuff in Marathon and owned some equipment that was in Marathon so anyway one day the owner of the house calls me calls me up and said Chris I don't know what's going on with this guy he's had architects around five times to look at doing something to the house I don't know what course i now know it was to build a studio in the basement mm-hmm. which is exactly where i'm sitting now <laughs> because it's, that's where my office is and it's got the tall ceilings and everything no way and, and so uh, and he said and his deadline's up tomorrow and he doesn't even have a mortgage i said okay how about i match his offer and i buy the house off you sounds like a plan let's do it wow so we got the house and um that was in october 1990 when we moved in three months after we moved into the house Kashif calls me at DreamHire. I'm still based uh, with Zambra on 25th Street at this point. Uh And he says, Chris, um, I'm moving my gear out of Marathon. I've got two Sony 3324s and a Neve console. Are you interested in buying it off me? I said to him, well, we've already got the 3324As, which is the newer model. These were the 24-track reel-to-reel digital machines, the Sony ones. And what am I going to do with a Neve console? I can't. I can't store that and move it around and rent it. Those things have to be installed fully in a studio and not moved. So, no. But hey, Kashif, thanks for not buying the house in Tarrytown, mate. He said, shit, really? You bought that house? That's funny.
1: Small world. That's incredible. No way. Didn't Kashif pass away last year?
2: he did and and um, it was last year or the year before and i actually yeah. found an article in the new york times about about him that's how i found out more about his history in the no music way.
1: yeah yeah oh that's that is crazy okay uh, to wrap up i got to ask just one or two more questions one of them was sent in by rob disner the guy i mentioned who mm-hmm. uh, runs your page he wanted to know specifically If um, he felt that 5705 and the song Cigarettes both have sort of Eastern, Middle Eastern riffs included in them. that was uh conscious if you guys were going for a particular kind of sound or vibe with those two songs
2: uh, uh i don't think so i'll have to listen to the begin to see about really? this middle eastern thing uh-huh. it might have been mike's style of guitar playing at that particular Maybe. time I don't okay. know. He's, but uh he's been compared with um with a, a lot of people like richie blackmore and um and brian may and uh uh, and um, what's his name from Bebop Deluxe as well? Um, what's his name again? I don't know that band sure. that well. You know Oh, Bebop Deluxe is great. You've got to have a listen to them. Okay. Great. Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson is oh, okay. the guitar player in uh, Bebop Deluxe, which are all very good guitar players. So. Oh, good. Okay. And Mike has actually got a um, has released some records uh, in his own rights. Well worth going on to Spotify and having a good. listen to those if you okay. want to check them out. I will Search for sure. For Mike Slay- That's S-L-A-M-E-R, only one M, not slammer.
1: Right, yeah, okay, good. And then um, I'm curious how, is it true that Huey Lewis is playing harmonica on it's only the end of the world?
2: Huey Lewis uh, worked with Mutt. Uh, yeah, he had a band the connection. Clover. Clover, And Lutt did sure. two albums with Clover. Mm-hmm. And I have both of them on vinyl. They're great. Yeah, and so that was the connection. Okay. And, uh, and when we were in Rockfield at one time, um, the Van de Graaff generator were there, and we got the sax player in to do a session from them. So we were just using whoever happened to be around. One other little related story that yeah. you might want to in here that we didn't touch on was Steve Steve Lunt was his real name his middle name was Steve Broughton Mm -hmm. uh, and he dropped the name Lunt uh, for stage purposes because it rhymes with a nasty word (laughs) and interestingly (laughs) enough he got a check from the PRS one day which was made out to Steve Broughton but it was the Steve Broughton who is Edgar Broughton's brother who played on um, Tubular Bells. Oh, no way. <laughs> it was, he, he thought, this is not right. This seems like a lot of money. Yeah. He did the right thing and sent it back. Good. But, Good for him. But when, uh, when I was in need of a member of staff for DreamHire in New York, uh, Steve calls me up one day because he's he, he was uh, one of the, uh, the other guys who stayed in New York. And he had uh, been uh, writing songs with Cindy Lauper. He was Mm -hmm. also the fifth co-writer on the B-side of We Built This City by Jefferson Starship. Mm. So he'd been making a bit of money doing this. But he called me up and says, uh, Chris, I'm going through a rough patch with my writing. And I really could use a job because I need some health insurance. (laughs) So Uh I said, well, you're in luck because Dream Hire needs somebody. Now, Steve, you don't have any experience in the rental world. But who the hell does? Because it's a very niche thing anyway. But you've been in studios, you know about gear, you have an English accent, you'll do great. All you've got to do is answer the phone and take rental orders. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> so great. he came and worked with me at DreamHire for a year. While he was there, of course we were in the Zomba building on 25th Street, while he was there, he bumped into Clive a couple of times in the elevator. And Clive said, ah, oh, yes, hi, Steve, I understand you're working for us, that's great. Then I get a call from Clive one day, and Clive says, Chris, I might have a project that I want to give Steve a try with. Would you mind if I borrowed him? Because I've interviewed 75 A&R guys because we're trying to find someone who can help break the Backstreet Boys.
1: Oh my gosh. In
2: the States. Uh, they're doing well in other parts of the world but not mm. in the States. And I haven't been able to find one because all these other guys think we're still a rapper label and they want to come and work with rap bands, yeah. or rap artists. Yeah. So I said, Clive, if it's anything to do with a and that's just what Steve needs to do because he's not enjoying working at Dream Hire. You've got uh, to be a, a, a chap to, be, to get sure. a kick out of being in the rental business. Yeah. So anyway, he ended up creating a position for Steve, in the director of international A&R. No way. But he didn't give him the Backstreet Boys because he got something else. And you got this 15 year old girl they just signed <laughs> whose name is Britney Spears. Yes. Steve became oh. Britney Spears, AR guy, was totally oh in charge gosh. of launching her career, finding the songs, and finding the producers, and sitting in on every session to make sure everything ran smoothly. That was Steve's new name. That's night.
1: incredible. Yeah. What stories he must have. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Are you in indeed. touch with him at all?
2: Yes. In Good. fact, he's he's working on a, a project at the moment, and he needed to borrow some mics from me, so I lent him some Perfect. that I hadn't sold. Perfect. And um, he's working on this project, which I can't go into detail on yet, but That's okay. it should be coming to fruition at some point soon. It might be very interesting.
1: That's great. Well, this was fascinating, Chris. I was hoping that we could shine a light on City Boy and all their great music that people probably don't know because maybe they only know 5705. And I feel like we did that and we got some great stories. So thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. Please listen to City Boy's records on Spotify. It won't cost you anything. And I think you'll be very surprised and very happy
1: absolutely i've been burning through all of them on that there you have it chris dunn hope you guys enjoyed that if you're new to city boy give it some time it's a they're a trip man they put out these really interesting albums and the sounds are all over the place i i put it i left it up to rob to pick the closeout song here and he selected this one right here beth which is on that same album book early that also features the 5705 hit so anyway, give spend a little time getting to know City Boy. It's worth it. It is such a trip. It's so much fun. Now, next week we are going to hear from the main man behind one of the greatest R&B groups in history. We're sort of keeping with the 70s theme here, although the band is still very much alive and very active. In fact, they put out maybe my favorite album of 2018, just this past year by the time you listen to this um, but their heyday was really the 70s so I hope you will come back and check that out uh, you can send us a message on Facebook and, and you can like our page you can send us an email at the at gmail.com and or you can find us on Twitter at the hustlepod. and as always thanks to my right hand man Yan the man for putting everything together thanks buddy for everything you do folks We love you so much, and we hope you had a very, very Merry Christmas, okay? We'll talk to you next Tuesday.